Hey, and welcome to Life After Jet, a podcast all about the lives and careers of the fascinating people who all share one thing in common. They were all past participants of the Japanese exchange program known as Jet. My name's Aiden, an ex-Jet myself, and I'll be joined by my occasional co-host and also ex-Jet, David Rowling, on this episode. Our guest today is Andy Chaliff, whose occupation is... I'm going to say life coach, but I think he would agree with me, it's kind of hard to pin down. He's had an eventful life that has seen him go from hippie backpacker to corporate high flyer during the dot-com access years, before turning his back on it all to become a penniless boarder in his mentor's sleeky attic. And fast forward a few years to where he is now, traveling six months a year for work, mostly between North America and Europe. Andy has also written a book which will be released in September. We discuss this, his philosophy, and try to get to know the unknowable. See you at the end. Um, well, thank you guys for having me. Uh, Jet has sort of been one of these important moments in my life. And I've always thought back and thought of those uh, things that kind of shaped who I've become. And certainly those years were like very pivotal to kind of grounding me in, in a deeper awareness of how people can exist in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, yeah, very uh, special time. And I was there, I, you know, it's going back years, so I have to kind of count my own years, but that I would have been, would have been 92, 93. I would have been uh, just, yeah, now I'm now at 47. Am I 48? I believe I'm now 48. At some point I stopped counting. So it's more, I have to like, I have to subtract. No, I I agree with you. I actually, I don't really think about my age that much. It's it's a survival mechanism. (laughs) Yes. It's dwindling down. And my work, that's one of the weirder questions to answer only because I have such a diverse way that I work. I'll travel to many different locations and even countries and just sit with people usually that are the heads of the businesses they run. Mm-hmm. And then I'll kind of, I'm like a rent-a-friend. So I'll sit with them and I'll talk to them about all the issues regardless. There's nothing usually off limits. It's family, it's kids, it's uh, obviously people in the workplace. And then I usually start to, like a virus, kind of mingle in the group, but no one really will trust me to begin with. Mm. And slowly, I sort of, they, they see that I work from a very principled, uh, I have a very principled, principled approach. So they, in general, begin to sort of sort of say, well, you make sense. And I'm accustomed to someone like you usually coming and preaching to me, but you're actually just sort of being an example of the thing you're asking me to be. And, and that tends to be a very pretty uh, amazing approach to changing behavior in people, just being the example of what you want them to be. And I do that often six months a year. I'll actually be traveling the world six months a year doing that kind of work. And uh, I, I live in eternal gratitude. I visit friends and actually I get paid for it. I should start charging my friends every time I visit them. We have an interesting conversation. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind I'll of just, it, you know. I'll have to backdate these invoices. Hold on a second. Cheers, <laughs> <laughs> cheers. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned Cleveland. I do spend a lot of time in Cleveland, funnily enough. Oh, hey. Wonderful. I work work with like the CEO of the Cleveland Municipality School District and uh and I'm running a very big uh, nonprofit, uh, working with uh, someone from a nonprofit called Start Soul, which mm-hmm. is a 
different approach to education and how, uh, yeah, how kids are learning, which is watching a video today, you'll see that the, today's education system is kind of outdated. And, uh, and this is a, a, an approach to that. So okay. really nice. where, where are we talking to you from, actually? Yeah, not a... uh, right now I'm in Indiana, but my home is in Amsterdam. Okay. Amsterdam and London, but London will sort of, will. my wife has decided to uh, to give up her job and move back to Amsterdam again. So we're back, at, we're, we're back together in one place, which is good. Okay, so, cool. Indiana, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, Indiana. Yeah, I'm in Bloomington right now. I work a lot at the Jacobs School of Music here, which is the same Jacobs as Jacobs Field in uh, in Cleveland. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. yeah. So where did where did they end up putting you then, Anja? I was in Shinjo, Shinjo, which was at the time it was you know north on Honshu. It was sort of high up past Sendai, and it, it's actually at the time it was um, it was uh the the and now the shinkansen ends at that station but when i was there there was no shinkansen that actually went there so it uh it sadly i went back about two years ago and it was it was a farming village hmm. and when when i was there in 92 it was exactly when they deregulated and they imported rice and basically it devastated that that city and i went back to the city two three years ago maybe yeah. and it was one of the saddest experiences of my life. It was literally half, if not more, of the shops were just shut down. Mm. And uh, it was it was one of these experiences where your brain can't process that reality because it was so alive when I was there. And then to go back to the same city and see it, you know, rusting away. It was, you know, things you read about, like in Detroit. But this was obviously, um, you know, it was a thriving city that just just got devastated because of the rice imports. Mm. It was quite, quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Japanese country towns are certainly, you know, struggling in that sense. Take us back to the glory days of it, though, I guess. That's, you know, living living the, the, the happy memories of it, what was it like there? Uh, it was, it was, it was wild because I was, there was, a, there was one of the, um, what, what is the title? I always forget the other, the people that will do work at the cultural centers. There's the two levels of the, the CIR. And the ALT, CIR and yeah. ALT, yeah. Yeah, the ALT. So there was an ALT that came a bit later from New Zealand with a family, but I was actually the only foreigner in that city. So it was kind of weird because I, I actually realized, it was like, wow, this is what a rock star feels like. Like wherever <laughs> they go, they're looked at all the time. You know, and, and it was like, I don't want to get used to this or feel comfortable with it because, you know, I just, I like to mingle and kind of, like blend in and to be standing out that much all the time was a bit it was a bit too much it was i remember that was that my um somebody saw me ordering or, or at the supermarket and yeah. then they looked at what i put in my bag and i got home and i got a call from my landlady that said i heard you bought a b c and d and it just was like the most absurd <laughs> You know, the the, the, the the chain went that quick, that fast, was just yeah, amazing yeah. to me. No, so, I, I mean, I, I've got that too. You know, I, I lived in Nagano in a rural community. And, yeah. You know, you go to the grocery store and like, I got introduced to like one person, six generations of their family, like in the middle of the produce. I'm like, oh, David, this is my grandfather. Come meet him. And they're all like, <laughs> taking his hand. Oh, this is my grandfather. Come meet him. Um, saying hello to the grandmother and the young brother. And, you know, everyone that in the grocery store just gathering around you don't want to be rude but it's like oh okay <laughs> yeah and, 
I made a big mistake, like a big one. My brother is a magician. Yeah. So I used my opportunity in Japan to practice the magic that I'd grown up with since I was a kid. Yeah. So what ended up happening was that I was doing magic shows throughout, <laughs> throughout the region. And so whatever, whenever I walked on the street, I'd have like a line, like the Pipe Piper, of, instead of them, the rats, the kids would follow me because they all, I, I, I did magic at all their schools. So not only was I the white guy, but I was the guy the, to do magic as well. You, know? you were literally the magical white guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We actually, another ALT in my town came in that like was really talented in magic, but he had the same problem too because he once he pulled it out, like anywhere from like the adults to like the high up at the board of education, like, hey, Dallin, do magic, do magic, do magic. And he's like, I'm so tired. Right? I'm doing magic right now. <laughs> I love Japan. All right. So you yeah. became a magician. What, what, what else about the experience, like, impact? Well, I, I mean, the, the whole thing, and I write about it because the book it will be in September coming out. And the one thing that was really, like, most pivotal for me was this, un, like, unspoken understanding that existed. And I've often seen, and it often kind of frustrated me that there would be people that would at times judge the Japanese for not being direct. Mm. and they'd say oh they never speak their minds and i would say if you only looked at their face you'd actually understand everything they want to say and just allow that to be enough mm -hmm. and um since i'm highly empathetic it really suited how i am in the world because i felt like wow finally i don't need to use all the words and it can be understood on a very subtle almost this beautiful level you know and that and in the book i write about ishin denshin which is that you know the supposed magical power to read one another one one another's minds, right? Which is for me, it's like a I would describe it in my own words as a, like a, a heightened self awareness where people are kind of conscious of the group and not only themselves, of course. So yeah, you're speaking. What are the concepts too? What is that? A homne and tate mai, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll I'll, I'll wrap this up. Is one's true feelings and intentions, whereas tate mai is how you present yourself to the group, or at least how you speak. To the group yeah so, yeah yeah, yeah. And, it, and it was nice because year one i couldn't speak any japanese and i felt like i was sort of in a prison because the conversation was always like five questions and you always knew you were going to get those five questions like um you know how do you like the women how do you like the food what are the guns in america like they were kind of like there was like the five things that were always and i was and it was it was like it was almost like everyone was there to torture me with the same questions mm. The humor was was that I didn't understand anything anymore until I started keying into the cultural the cultural like undertones that yeah. weren't being spoken, and that was really that was the most fascinating thing for me. So oh, um, yeah, it's it yeah. still is because it's you know language is just it's I think a fifty fifty thing. If you don't, you can learn the language, but if you don't learn the culture, you'll have no context for what the language. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember always being very cautious of the things I observed out of like even courtesy courtesy like i would i remember seeing a friend and he had this g-star watch on and just to be nice i was like oh i love that watch and then he like took it off and gave it to me and like i could not take it like it was a, couldn't give it, it back <laughs> it was a moment like and i still have it and i cherish it because basically oh, it's like, it symbolizes yeah. it symbolizes this warmth and this just utter generosity that's mm. so overwhelming yeah, I mean, and you can't reject it because in rejecting it, you reject the intentions behind it. 
and yeah. that's part of the like that beauty that you you try to explain that in another culture and it just doesn't translate you know it just does not yeah be reflective of your own culture too and it's like wow i hope we treat um you know people in the states who come to visit in this situation in the same warmth and compassion and uh, i don't know sometimes yes sometimes no but it does make you think it make you more like aware of that going the other way when returning to the states i felt so yeah um so from jet let us get into your yeah. role your job as a as a life coach um mm. what is the philosophy that you're basing your work on like uh i've read i read your book by the way thank you very yeah. much for sending the copy through it, there is yeah. a lot of ideas ideas packed mm. uh, in 243 pages uh yeah. so i'm still digesting my way through it um I guess maybe we can start with what your philosophy is uh, in your work. Yeah, it's interesting because in a weird, I, I'm actually self-taught. And the yeah. strange thing is I wrote a book, but I actually don't really enjoy reading, which is quite a hum humorous situation to be in. So I tend to, I tend to like take my experience really seriously. Like I, I do something, but I observe what's working and what's not working. And I don't like just assume whatever I do is right. It's almost like I try to falsify myself always. And, mm -hmm. and, and if there's a philosophy that came from like that way of processing the world, it's almost like the, I see um, attention always in myself, which is very much in this yin-yang sort of, uh, of, of scene of the world, this feminine and masculine energy. And basically, I just see myself sort of hovering between a more masculine, determined, wanting to get somewhere, wanting to achieve against the attention that comes with this more feminine energy, which is being at peace, being just calm and quiet and loving mm -hmm. everything that is without needing anything. And I'm always laughing because I let the voice inside of myself kind of feel into those both pieces of it. I don't judge either side of it. And I kind of just say, where is either one of these leading me in a way that isn't serving what I'm looking to achieve or my relationship with another person? And then all I do is I just let that voice be really free and it'll say basically what would be almost one might call inappropriate things in the middle of inappropriate moments. But apparently when those things are said without judgment, people tend to be really open to just allowing the freedom to speak because in general, they're not given that freedom, right? They, they tend to feel judged if someone says, oh, why are we doing it like this? This is crazy. Then it's not said that way. It said, you know, why are we doing it this way? And then all of a sudden they shut themselves down because they don't want to try to justify the way that they behave or the, the, the reasons that they've come to those ways of working. So basically I'm just pulling from the awareness that this tension exists in everyone. Like everyone has this deep desire to do something more than what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then that will sometimes not serve them when they actually even want to do it. Sometimes you're better off saying, oh, I'm okay failing. I'm okay with this not succeeding. And then allow that energy to be the energy that grounds you. And then a lot of times you find that just by being ready to let it all go away, it tend, you tend to get the thing that you don't struggle to get anymore. So, so this is that concept of vulnerability that you mentioned in your book, I take it. It's like, yeah. Well, it's always hard because like, if someone's been abused by somebody else, I don't necessarily want them to like be vulnerable and just get 
kicked in mm-hmm. the face again. So mm-hmm. there's it, it's a fine line. But what what I often see is that people use excuses to move away from vulnerability, and in doing that, they move further away from like what makes life meaningful. So for me, like if it ain't meaningful, I'm not doing it. Like it's really it, it, to to some pretty drastic levels. Like I live in a pretty extreme world. And most people would say, wow, I could never live that way. But I'd say, if you just chose to live the way you wanted to live, that would be the natural conclusion. You would say, you know, if I'm, if I'm with somebody and, and the talk isn't really connecting to where I am, I can either blame them, which a lot of people do, like, why are you so boring? Mm-hmm. Or I could say, I'm going to move away from them and say, oh, I don't want to spend any time around that person. Or my suggestion would be to stay in the middle of the vulnerability and say, I know that this is important for you, but at the moment, it's really hard for me to, to listen and take it in. So what do you suggest we do or how can we like engage in a way that actually makes me part of this discussion? So in a way, what I'm suggesting is that there's always an alternative to fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of to stand and allow yourself to be freer in how you show yourself. And the more you do that, the freer you get at it. Because most people aren't used to being able to stand and allow vulnerability in a way that they don't feel like that, that they're not going to potentially be hurt. Right. Right. And they've been, and people have been hurt. I mean, people don't, they're not, not vulnerable because they haven't had a bad experience in the past. So, yeah. you know, I'm I'm traveling America in September for three months mm. and I'm planning to stop at 60 locations and three and in those three months, which is already its own, like feed in and of itself. I'm driving. The math doesn't work easy on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had to actually time it so that each location is a four hour drive. Okay. Wow. So, like, I basically have to, like, you know, and, and they're already booked, you know, I, it, amazingly, yeah, it, it, it came around pretty quick. I said, I'm making myself available. And then basically, the, the route made itself, right? So mm-hmm. now I've literally got, uh, you know, I'll be, hosted at it's it's we haven't made the big announcement so it's 50 without having made any of the press releases that are going to be coming out okay so by the time it's done i i, I don't know who, what i'm going to look like as a human being but I, do, <laughs> I, I do know that i i had to lose 10 pounds because if if i don't manage my body i there's no way my mind will function up over after those yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. so but that tour is actually me sitting in groups and asking people to write letters to loved ones. Mm. So, so people are just asked to sit, and if they don't have a loved one in mind, then they can write it to their past self. And if they don't want to write to their past self, they can write to their future self. Or if they lost somebody, a lot of times people write letters to people they've lost in their lives. On one yeah. occasion, mm-hmm. I mean, I had someone write a letter, a woman wrote a letter to a man that raped her. Mm. And and I mean, like I talked, I. I share it like this, but as I share, like, I mean, I'm, I'm almost halfway on the verge of tears on any given day because the amount of, of uh, the amount of love and vulnerability and, and difficult, like sharing is pretty overwhelming. You know, people yeah. are really sharing incredible things. Yeah. So. And I'm sure, you know, at, in the era of 2018, it's, it's in the era of constant, endless, never-ending digital distractions and, you know, the increasing, increase, ever-increasing pace of life. It's very beneficial for a lot of people to take time and perform exercises such, like, such as that, which maybe just looking at them could appear obvious as a very beneficial thing for 
someone's own mental health and perspective on life, but we're yeah. moving so fast that, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> the yeah. thought of actually doing something like this, like, oh yeah, I should really write a letter to I should do that. Yeah. Months later, like it pops in your head again and then leaves again. And yeah, yeah, I'm sure. anyway. yeah. I mean, you know, I've already had like three pretty wild experiences where people have written letters to someone that's even died a week later which is like, you know, from my perspective, it's sort of, it's even overwhelming to hear the stories because now I know that at least the sharing gave another person an opportunity to take this sort of life we have so seriously that they might do something that they otherwise wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. That's been a real beautiful part of this journey is like, you, you, I, I don't even know the impact that it has because sometimes the results come, you know, weeks or months later, you know. Great. Right. I got well, a letter from. Oh, sorry, go on. Please go. I said I got a letter from someone that read, um, read that read it to their to their mother on her deathbed, mm. and that was just yeah. I mean, wonderful. It's mm. amazing the kind of stuff that you read, and then I mean, I got to tell you, it's yeah. I cry daily. It's mm. you, I read this stuff, and it's like wow. Mm. You know, even talking to you guys, it's hard for me to like kind of like now let me present my. But it's like it's well, it's 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 deep, you know. So. Yeah. I hope you keep hydrated. <laughs> yeah, I have it here. <laughs> I, I just, I'll ask the very terrible question is like, what would exactly happen to lead you up to that point and so to where you are now? <laughs> what was interesting was that, you know, the, the, the book and my life was really defined by my mom's death. Okay. So, so my mom, when I was first year in college, she was hit and killed by a drunk driver. Yep. And basically, I was taking a sociology of death class before uh, before this occurred. And I had already given a great deal of thought to the fact that I was going to lose my mom. And my parents were divorced and I wasn't close to my father. So yeah. I actually sat and wrote my mom a letter that, that you know, for me was just, it, it had to be written because the acuteness of realizing how important special she was, was just in my face. Mm-hmm. And, and I mailed the letter and she got that letter and literally she died uh, five hours later. She was killed by the mm-hmm. driver five hours. So that, that, that urgency of life has been something that's defined me way before Jeff. Okay. And, and, and then and it's also the, that's defined a lot of my decision making. Because after Jet, given the fact that there, yeah. was good, there was good money, I was like, okay, Andy, if you have a year, what do you want to do? And I just looked at the map and I said, I want to travel overland. I want to go from, you know, Southeast Asia, travel, take the Trans-Siberian and do this whole, I want to have a journey. And, uh, and I just did that. So that, mm-hmm. that, that, and then basically through a lot of these journeys, what I ended up finding, I fell in love with a Swiss woman and I ended up in Switzerland at some point. And then in, from Switzerland and then Switzerland, I don't know if you've been there. It's a beautiful place, but the people can be a little bit cold. Okay. Putting it lightly. Yeah. Um, to our Swiss oh, listeners. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then I moved to, I moved to Austria. I moved mm-hmm. to Austria and I lived there for 10 years. And I, I, I was right there at the dot-com bubble. It was really funny because I was a long-haired hippie. I literally had hair down to here. Yeah. I basically never had a job outside of Jet. And then I end up in Austria basically just having kind of struggled to learn the language. And I'm now trying to find a job. And... Basically, I, I looked in the newspaper after failing for a, a few weeks, and then it said international presenter wanted. And, you know, that was interesting because that's when all of you have 
no job, but you have all these experiences. And somehow there's people that start to like, they're more intelligent. They're like, okay, I'm going to hire somebody that's got a lot of experience because I trust with all that experience, he'll be okay in the job. Yep. So yeah. basically I got hired as the assistant marketing manager, although that wasn't even the job. I just said, Hey guys, I'd love to do marketing. And then the yes. guys said, yeah. yeah. And then the company was going public. It was during the, the IT bubble. And then that guy, I think two months after or three months, he quit. So yeah. all of a sudden, I was just—I went from a long-haired hippie. I cut my hair for the job interview, <laughs> and then I had a budget of well over a million dollars, and I couldn't even manage my own bank account. Yet now I was managing a over a million-dollar budget. The 16 countries. This was, and the and they were going public, so they were actually doing an IPO, which I now had to even communicate with investors around subjects I knew nothing about. You right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember words being thrown around like P.E. ratio. Oh, yes. Nod your head often, you know, like yeah, in Japan. Yeah, I know what price to earnings ratio means. Yep. yep. <laughs> just nod your head like this. Say, mm, yeah. And just hope no one asks you any questions. Right. It, it was a wild ride. I, I joined the company. They okay. went public. It went public at six, six dollars. I think at the highest point per share, it was like somewhere over eighty dollars. Right. Down to 10 cents. Yeah. <laughs> and it went down to $3. Right. So I, I wow. rode the wave all the way up and all the way down. And I left because I was just, you know, I actually, you know, the joy and love I had, quite frankly, in Japan hmm. um, and all of this sort of higher level consciousness of your surrounding. Hmm. Once you get to the more Western cultures, it's very much individual, individualistic and it's kind of all about me. Yeah. And, um, and I kind of fell in the trap of like, not seeing the beauty of the whole. And then I just, uh, maybe two years, I was that person in the mirror I just didn't like. You know, exactly that guy. You're like, oh my God. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember calling up friends in Japan who I was really dear to and speaking to them in the, in the revised version of myself that was far more individ individualistic. And I could hear them just not wanting to connect on that level, you know? Yeah. And then I ended up with a mentor who just kicked my butt. He came from the Netherlands. The Dutch are very direct people. They don't suffer fools. He, you know, saw me, saw I wasn't happy. And he was, uh, you know, at that time in the company, I was also in charge of the, um, the education. And he said, uh, you know, you're, you're an imposter. You're not living the life and you're living from fear. And basically, I sold everything I owned and mm. like lived in his attic space so that I wouldn't have to work for money again. Like I really did a life do over. So there was no wow. toilet, there was no heating, there was no, I had a bottle of pee in every night if I needed, you know, it was like, it was like, it was like life, I'm now going to live my life the way I want to and not be defined by status and money and trying to achieve and all the, all the things that everyone tends to get lost in, right? Mm -hmm. And that, and then I ended up in Amsterdam where I've lived for the last 10 years. But interestingly, the personal development, coaching, mentoring, the work in um, the U.S. is far more, um, uh, I'd say, prevalent than in other countries, you know, mm -hmm. in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands, if you say you need a coach, then the first question is like, why can't you do this on your own? Like as if, as if you're lacking capacity or I can imagine it's similar in Australia as well, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah, similar quality. Americans seem to have this need for someone to guide them or I mean, I no, no, I think it's, I think it's different. Like, you know, I think what I learned in Japan 
really because it was so drastically different than the U.S. was mm. that like we live in a cultural bubble. Like everyone lives in their cultural bubble. So whatever influences, whatever's on TV, whatever the books they read and the subtle like social things that will occur around you, they just. So in America, it's a, a lot about achievement. I mean, if you're in America, what car you drive, mm. like what state you have in terms of like achievements and what role. I mean, it's important. I mean, in Australia, the cutting the tall poppy, if you try to talk about how great you are, they're going to chop you down faster than you have the, the chance mm. to let the next word come out of your mouth. But in the U.S., there's really like if there's like I would call it almost the undercurrent of a social understanding that says if you want to achieve in life, then you've really got to focus on sharpening your sword because everyone's read that book. Right. Mm -hmm. And then and then since that's such a common belief held by so many people, one of the questions that one would ask in America is like, who's mentoring you as mm -hmm. if obviously you have a mentor, you don't you don't you don't even you like assume not it's just a common practice that if you want to get good you need someone with you to sort of push you past the things you're not able to to, to see in yourself mm -hmm. so that's something very much in i would say uh you know a social a social uh a consciousness or a, a, a way of being right and that's just it's different in every country i think but i think that's that's a very positive thing i'm even in my work now which i'll be leaving my my boss is i think he's like he's like 60 something and he always has this guy come in every month this guy john who's much older than him in business and you know basically just give him advice and look at his sheets and that's his that's his you know yeah that's his mentor and I, I, yeah it's interesting to hear that about the states i guess um you think there's also kind of again because it's such an as in states because we're such an individualistic culture do you think there's also kind of an emotional need and emotional gap too from just being constantly focused on your own personal success that kind of leaves you when no one else is looking at the work, you know, it kind of leaves you vulnerable for someone to actually talk to, like you said, for a, for a friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, let's compare it with Japan. If you think about it, like, like you will get a lot of meaning from your life just by being with others with uh, intention to share something greater. You know, the ancestry on the walls, right? There's always something greater than you. I, I was In the book, I wrote that one of the dear women that I spent so much time with when I would promote myself on any level, she'd mm. always just say, Andy, please think about all the people around you that made that thing possible, you know? So, I mean, even in any expression of self and independent, it was often said, no, think about the whole, yeah. think about the whole. Give us the full credits for the movie, in other words, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and, that, and that, that's kind of back to the yin-yang. If I was going to put an extreme of the, of the positive, the masculine and feminine energy, it would really be, the Japanese and the Americans for me in the two cultures I've spent, you know, most of my time in, because there is a lot of achievement focus in the U S right. Mm -hmm. um, even if you look at a Tony Robbins who will pull from some of the softer energy, it is pulling people in because they want to live their full expression. And it's often an outward expression that is even connected with wealth In the Eastern, you have much more of this grounded philosophy. The Buddhism obviously is, you know, teaching you how to be conscious of desire and need and want and how to find peace in yourself with all of that tension that arises when when these things come up so yeah. in that sense these these uh these two competing energies i see very well uh well seen at least in the american and the japanese cultures yeah i wonder what would happen if you uh try to work in other asian cultures because mm -hmm. 
uh, in Singapore and Hong Kong. Well, in Singapore, it used to be said that if you've achieved the five C's, then you've got made, which is car, cash, credit, condo, and career. Yeah, that's the set. The set. I, I yeah. realized that. That's all you need, man. Where's yeah. the female or the male partner in that? <laughs> I, I'll also work in Malaysia. Sometimes I work oh. in Borneo on occasion. And last, uh, I guess it would have been two weeks ago now, I had two of the people that I've worked with for several years stay at the house because I have a house that I also use as a, it's a, it's like, a, it's a very historic, it's a beautiful monument in Amsterdam where I do, you do the training mm. and they came and stayed and then we, we worked together and they've known me for many years. And what's really funny is that they are very much religious and in, 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 in Catholic in this case. Mm. And, and what they'll, what he says is that he's been often exceptionally confused by me because I'll say the exact same things as he'll read in the Bible, but I'll also use the F word when I'll talk about it, right? <laughs> so, so he, in a way, I, I, I like, I've often seen that all religions are all speaking from this really deep truth and then somehow they set rules and they create their own structures and then they oh. sort of fractionate away from one another when actually they're all pulling from this same kind of beautiful principle. So I'd like to think that if you kind of put them all together and said, what is it that we're trying to say, even though the rules have been put in place, and in essence, they'd all be going back to the same sort of set of uh, principles. And for me, you know, working in Malaysia has been harder. And in, in one factor, which is really quite interesting, the same is true for Japan, is there are these beautiful tests that they do. Um, on the internet, I'll have to uh, reference that. But and what what the test is? I've never. It's really a beautiful thing. You go on the internet and you say you put in the two countries, and then it'll show you how they're ranked on traits, on specific traits. And the trait that I often see the most interest around is it's called directness to authority. So if you look, how far does an individual allow themselves to look up to authority? And, and how much does that culture sort of see people as equals? Mm -hmm. So if you look in the Netherlands, they're very equal. But if you look at Japan or Indonesia, then what you find is that they'll revert to authority, obviously, for cultural reasons, far more. And mm -hmm. it's hard if you're in a company coaching individuals to be vulnerable and direct with ah. their superiors, as you know, in Japan, where if you're direct with them, you know, it just doesn't work within the cultural confines. Yeah, especially yeah. some of the to a country like Japan, where it's very much what's the word like a, a gerontocracy. It's that's how it's structured by age, really. The key factor. That's the key difference. And even there, I found ways to help those individuals do it, where they didn't believe me it was possible, and yet it worked. Mm. Mm. Just okay. I, I just said to the guy, "You're going to ask a question, and then you're going to be quiet." I'm just going to, you're just going to be quiet. You're not going to say a word. It could be five minutes. Just, just don't say a word until they begin to speak. And, and then he said, it won't work. It won't work. I said, I don't care if it works, just do it. And mm. now it worked. And he just tells me, he laughs at how simple it can be. If you just tweak and try something, say, guys, how's it going? And then just let that tension build up until someone bursts. <laughs> <laughs> someone literally might explode and whatnot. For, for people listening in, uh, that silence was uh, because Annie was just miming, looking around the room. 
Uh, so nothing was wrong with the with your audio that was disappeared. <laughs> can, you, uh, a bit of miming. can you add five minutes of silence? Yeah, five minutes of silence. Yeah. Have you heard of the experiments they've done in boredom? I love referencing this test. They basically, and it was done at a university. They put people inside a room with nothing in it, just a chair and a table, blank wall. And they said, you can only sit in this chair. You're not allowed to move. You're not allowed to do anything. Or you can press this button and administer yourself an electric shock. So it turns <laughs> out that people are so uncomfortable with being bored and like just told to stare straight at a wall that they will actually voluntarily shock themselves. <laughs> One person shocked himself like a thousand times in an hour because he was so like uncomfortable with just standing and looking at a wall. So wow. That, that should say something about humans. I'm not sure exactly what. But. Yeah, well, it's certainly clear that distraction is required to find peace. That's for sure. And it's never really peace, is it? Yeah. You mentioned briefly about how you work. And you're going on this uh, uh, quite grueling tour of the States. Yeah. And so you said that you get a group. You sit with a group of usually around 40 to 50, I think it was. Well, it, it, it's actually really, really open. Basically, I've invited people to sit with groups that they'll find that the, that it's a meaningful interaction. Mm -hmm. So it can be 100 people and meaningful, or it could be three people. I mean, my preference is five, at least. But yeah. I, I'm, what, what I don't want people doing is shoving people in a room where the people there are not like like wanting to be there nor looking to sort of be together in this. this it's kind of a, it's a beautiful state. I mean, if you see what emerges when somebody shares a deep feeling that they have towards somebody else, it's just, you're asking, you know, these are the gates of heaven opening up, but you don't need to die. You know, it's, just, it's a beautiful experience. So I don't want that to be corrupted because they're trying to shove too many people in a room. Mm. So, I mean, the tour, I'll be going to churches. I'll be going to Zen centers where they're dealing with end of life issues. Mm. Um, a lot of nonprofits, bookstores. The hope is to begin at Microsoft. So there'll be, um, um, you know, at least a nice launch and, and getting into that. So it's just, uh, it's a very eclectic, weird, you know, it's not intended to be overly structured. If, if someone says that, that, that they, you know, didn't necessarily find a big group, then we're still going to do it. And we're going to make that probably even more meaningful mm -hmm. than something that has a lot of people in it. Yeah. All right. And so you go through this letter writing exercise with all of them, or how do you normally start or conduct the workshop? Well, the whole thing is that, so the, the, if you saw that the, you know, I'm really pushing this, this, I'd call it a social movement, which is just inspire vulnerability. Hmm. And, and there'll be a lot of, um, a lot of publicity around that whole movement. And that's coming on, on that'll be a, a large press release on buzz, uh, a buzzworthy. Mm. And, and they're, they're going to feed that article for a few months because they really got excited about this. So it's, uh, mm. and um, we're working with a few different um, uh, publicists or not publicists, publications at the same time. So it'll, it'll, it'll break into more mainstream awareness. We'll see how it progresses, but it's a very organic development. There, there are these locations, which are this, you know, you have to think to yourself, this book was written, I was, I was literally, I got married June 11th last year. Congratulations. On the honeymoon, thank you. And on the honeymoon, I was in my bed and I woke up every morning at, it would have been five in the morning. And then I wrote the book on my iPhone from mm -hmm. five to eight usually while my wife was sleeping. And we traveled through, yeah, 
we traveled through Europe for three months, right? During the, I think it was three months. And I literally wrote 250 pages on my iPhone over that period. That writing then became the book. Mm. And then it was nice because even now I took, I must have taken, I don't know how many thousands of photos, but those photos are now complementing all of the, the, the titles or the chapters of the book. I got a weirder loaded question here. Yeah. So you Why, been, did you, I get married? You've been in Amsterdam <laughs> for 10 years, right? Yes. 10 years. Okay. So 2018 minus 10 equals 2008. So do you feel, and this is just me coming, because I was abroad too in 2008. I feel like something fundamental in our, like, I don't know, our security or self-perception of ourselves as Americans has drastically changed since 2008. And that really the entire United States has been in this bit of free fall since that yep. since hmm. recession. Do, do you feel that? Because if you're talking with people in companies and so on, do you, get, do you get this feeling that there's this greater insecurity, tension, stress, well, all sorts of, you know, yes. I'm sure you could say something out of it, but well, I'm curious to know, especially with this, this was that, that, that phenomena, I guess what you're talking about was one of the most amazing things to witness. Because the beauty of coming in and out of the U.S. for so 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 much for my work is yeah. meant that I get to kind of live in a whole nother social norm, and then I jump into another social norm. Yeah. And I remember like feeling like I, I I would tell everyone before I would come to the U.S. I'd feel very light and free, and then when I'd come in there, there would be this intense. Uh, just this just intense feeling like I, I mean you, you, you to, uh, just this one thing is so absurd that on the TV as you're doing a workout you're sitting there and there's a colored graphic on the screen that says we are code orange today there's an orange chance that you're going to get killed by a terrorist today right like, like I like how they put it in colors so you can understand it was always a color and to think to yourself that the fear load, the fear loading that was going on, that was just pumping in fear, fear, fear. And, and I used to talk to my dad and, and the fear he had just blew my mind. So what I, what I saw, and of course, with this cable news um, that also is feeding this, the, the kind of the, the, the fear in individuals, because, you know, fear gets ratings, you know, fear, blood and guts is where you get the ratings. Yeah. So, and, and the sad thing is, is that, that phenomena has happened in the U.S. in a way that people don't even they're not even conscious of the influences having of it because it's creeped in so much over time that mm -hmm. now they're just byproducts of what I see really is you could see it as a brainwashing that but you don't know you're being your brain's being washed because it's normal to have an orange thing blinking on the TV <laughs> that says you might get killed today because or if it's a red it's just oh yeah. <laughs> You know, and I don't know if you realize, but during all those events, there wasn't one terrorist act. So basically, for God knows how many years that that it would flash it red, orange, or yellow all the time, and people being fed with this anxiety that today is a day which we might get killed. Really, which is the thought you have to have when you see a uh, this, yeah. this color, yeah. and that has an impact on society. You know, and I thought post two thousand eight, if you've talked with, if you've done a lot of um. Like was was around two thousand eight. Was that when you started your life coaching? Uh, two, you're gonna laugh. So I was wondering if you talked with a lot of people at that 
kind of fragile moment. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. actually, this was when I was in my own fragile moment because I was employed probably at the, it was the tail end of my own, call it my living the success life. And mm. what happened was that when 9-11 happened and I write about this, I went into a deep depression because it basically it was like all the unhappiness of the two years prior was now just set ablaze because now I said, okay, if that much life can disappear that quickly, then, you know, is this the life that I want to live? Like, am mm -hmm. I proud if I were to die tomorrow? Is this anything close to who I would like to be? And yeah. the answers were just no, no, no. Mm -hmm. So it was really easy to, to literally sell everything I owned. And uh, I mean, the only thing I actually have as a possession from my past is a samurai sword I bought in Japan because that means so much to me. <laughs> and, and basically go and live in an attic space. I went from a director of a company, which I made more money than, than it seems like reasonable, to mm. living and peeing in a bottle. And it was just the most beautiful experience. Mm. You know? And I did that because of what you're saying. Because yeah. the, the fear of, well, I wouldn't say the fear of dying at that time, but really the fear of not living a life that I felt like is worth dying for, it just didn't exist. Mm. You know? And uh -huh. unfortunately, a lot of people don't get that experience because fear guides them. And you can imagine in a fear-based environment like the U.S. at the present moment, mm. that, and not only fear, you've got identity and identity politics. I mean, it is, yes. you know, I'm going into the belly of the beast on this tour asking people to be vulnerable. I can guarantee you a lot of the vulnerability is going to be to people which have a different political affiliation than they do. So mm -hmm. they've got to rise above their negative feelings that this guy is whatever he is, you know, because they're going to project horrible things on each other and write something beautiful. I mean, that's in essence what I'm asking people to do, right? Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, and I was going to flip that over. I was going to jump ahead to 10 years of 2018 and say, how's your work in the States going at this, um, what appears to be a very crucial and fragile moment? The work is, it's interesting. I mean, I'm... Um, since I work with such intensity yeah. and there's so much social, uh, social, uh, the, the social justice has become such, not only a theme, it's a core state of being. It, it's moved to the identity mm. that I've actually seen a really, really strange and interesting phenomena. Mm. I, I never really saw myself as a white privileged male, but I've been told that on several occasions <laughs> in the last year. And, and it's funny because I will say, yes, I, I am a white privileged male, but that shouldn't preclude me from also being able to help you. Mm. And I will be rejected more times than not. You'd be really shocked politics, yeah. because there people will say, you know, you've had your chance. You've been given all this privilege. We, we should be hiring minorities. And it's interesting because in a, in a weird way, they're they're actually right. I mean, I can't sit and argue. But on another way, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, wow, I'm conscious enough to understand their point. But if you're not conscious, you vote for Trump and then you create this this fractionate, this, mm. this fractional society where there's people that are very liberal and there's people that are very conservative. Yeah. And the center disappears. Yeah, unfortunately, it disappears. Yeah. I spoke with someone who voted for Trump about three hours ago mm. and I said to him, is there anything that he would or could do that would ever like change your mind around supporting him. And he said, if the economy didn't go as well, I'd consider. Yeah. And I laughed and I thought, interesting. So I asked him, I said, so like, how about like this sort of 
him trying to, you know, you know, I would almost use the word manipulate society in a way that actually forces this conflict. You know, I think he's smart and he's doing it intentionally. And then he said, and he said, no, 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 that, that wouldn't change my mind. That's just, that's just politics and news. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess for for a lot of uh, day-to-day, like the ordinary people, it's just the more pressing concerns of jobs and feeding yourself and the family that's important, not sort of the more idealistic. uh, Well, I guess to them, the more idealistic issues of immigration or uh, whether he colluded with the Russians or not and things like and corruption yeah. in the government that doesn't really bother them no. because they take that no as, as given of course there'd be corruption in the government for example yeah. yeah whether or not they act what they actually believe about immigration that's too far removed for a lot of Americans especially in, I guess if you live in the middle of America or, or places like that yeah I think yeah. I think like then again, if you're going on the, um, a 60 day tour of the United States, that gives an amazing amount of perspective because, you know, I'm assuming you're going to, you know, maybe at least 25, 30 different states across the whole spectrum. Yeah. And if you really get into the thick of that, you know, you'll be certainly blessed with a whole range of different and very varied experiences. All <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. right. To the center, to the up, to the down, to the north, to the west, to the south. And yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, I really chose to do this, even I would say not even, but especially given the state of the U.S. today. Because what I what I realized was that you know the world's got enough logic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't convince you that anything you already believe is mm-hmm. actually gonna like in any way gonna move in any other direction. But what I can do is say, give you a piece of paper and a pen, and say, remember how it feels to love. Mm-hmm. Like that feeling that's remote kind of in the back of your head when you were a kid and you just felt like the world was perfect like find that space in your head and then write to the person that you judge and let that guide you i mean that that's basically uh you know i can do that with any belief system and they can always say i'm not interested and i could say then don't do it right but yeah. i'll never need to argue with anyone around a belief because in me you know i can see every belief is just another it's funny it's just like it just like the americans and the japanese you know we all have how we were raised and that defines how we see the world so why would i argue with it i just want to welcome people to to find yeah. a bit more love in their lives true true persuasion is incredibly difficult and the only probably really the only way to actually persuade someone is actually to listen and acknowledge their views and then just kind of lightly oh. push things in but even then that's a very it's probably a very long and difficult process. Most people don't have time or patience. <laughs> yeah. You know what, what, what brings me a little bit back to Jet on this topic yeah. Yeah. was that the one thing I really loved in understanding the culture was that at some point I started to sort of see behind the curtain. Like I, I was like, oh, that's how the, that's how the wizard works. Mm-hmm. So when all of these things would happen, you know, that traditional you know, no one will ever say no. You're supposed to understand from that. So, kinda, you know, like that, that should be enough. Like you shouldn't need to push any further after you get a so kinda. But, um, but then I would start to interestingly say, okay, I heard your so kinda. So I've acknowledged the Japanese, the Japanese need not to say no. And that should have been, and say, in spite of that, and knowing that you did say no, would you still consider it? And mm-hmm. a lot of times they would say almost, since you're respectful of what I was trying to say and not steamrolling me, I'll let you, I'll let you do the next, I'll, 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 I'll give you, um, 
you know, the opportunity. And I did some crazy stuff in Japan. Like I took four kids from the farm who'd never been out of the country and I brought them to America for uh, for two weeks to do an actual uh, a cultural study of America. Mm. And uh, <laughs> and they came, I took them to gun stores, I took them to a cemetery, I took them like to every random place. That's the way to do it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and it was just this wonderful experience. And, and the reason why I felt like it worked was because although my direct superior was not happy with any discussion I would have, mm. sort of the vice principal and the principal, they were always like they saw in my eyes that I knew what was wrong or what I shouldn't be doing. But I would still ask in this kind of loving, um, almost generous way. And they really were kind to that. I also did a sumo tournament, which was just just incredible where i had it would have i don't know it was 30 or 40 foreigners all came to one location they all had mawashis on we had sumo wrestlers come in that's and they actually movie. they had a tournament which was just the most just crazy you know like foreigners <laughs> foreigners and mawashis they were doing the whole sumo bit and the best like the best part was my dear friend uh hideki who we still are in contact today he doesn't speak any any English, so I'm always forced to speak Japanese, so I can't really forget it. Otherwise, we will translate. <laughs> well, Hideki is this tiny, bony guy, is against this really chubby, like, uh, like just they shouldn't have been, they shouldn't have been in the same suit together. Up. And then the, the guy charges at him, just, just absolutely is going at him, just going to use his weight. And then Hideki just takes all of his weight and flips him over, and then he flies out of the ring. <laughs> <laughs> Using his own force against them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was just this beautiful moment of like, wow, this is the cultural experience for, this is where you learn, you know, that he's been watching a lot more sumo than you have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the Fukushima Jets actually do a similar thing every oh, yeah. year now. Uh, they get all the, whether it's all the foreigners, whether it's Jet or not, to uh, participate in some kind of a local sumo wrestling event and uh, a lot of locals turned up to you know basically oh, that, that brilliant fundraising right there i mean i yeah i would yeah. Pay, i'd pay more to watch that than an actual sumo, sumo tournament i know it's, so <laughs> yeah. it's impressive and when you work with your corporate clients i guess in the more sort of private hires uh how how is that different how do you actually go about what do you actually work with them about I assume people who are quite powerful or are used to being obeyed, I guess, or you sort of dictate things around them and, and yeah. run things. How do you run that? Yeah. yeah it's, quite, it's quite beautiful. Imagine, imagine like, okay. So I'm like, I explained, I'm really disciplined about what I see and I articulate it, making it impersonal. So I don't judge, but I say this behavior leads to that consequence. Like mm -hmm. it's, like where someone would see behavior in an abstract way, I see it like a mathematical equation. Like, I'm like, how can you not see that? Like, if you say, if you use that word with him, of course he feels that way. Mm. So basically what happens is I don't feel that people in high level positions meet somebody that gives them clarity it, that makes their lives easier. So all mm. I do is I, I almost let the inner voice speak so freely that in the end, it's almost like, it, they would sit there in the, in, the, in the moment and say, how could I not see that? You know, they say, I'm having a problem with this person. Then I'll address the exact problem. Like, instead of doing it this way, do it that way. And then, and then 
whatever tension comes up in them because of a mommy daddy issue, then I'll point it out really quickly. And I'll just say, is it mom or is it dad? Okay, what did they do to you? And why does that, you know, and then so there's not, I don't load stuff. I don't make it heavy. I just embrace them for who they are. Uh, make it obvious that the issues are bigger than maybe the problem they think they have with that person. And then they like welcome it. Cause like who comes into your life, like a best friend and just, just loves you for everything you are. Even if they get angry at me, I love him even more. And I say, you're right to be angry. It doesn't change the point. You know, I'll let you be as angry as you want. It still doesn't change the point that all the problems you're facing, look in the mirror and there's one thing that's consistent and it's you. So how do you want to deal with it? I said, you know, if, if you want to change, then you can do these three things and you'll see that there's a difference. And if you don't, then I'm not going to judge you for it. But don't complain about it. It's <laughs> just accept that that's it, you know. And right. that's kind of so refreshing for people because normally the trainer or coach, they don't put all their cards on the table. Like my cards are on the table all the time. They're just, OK, this is what I see. This is what I feel. And I can give it words. So it's not even my opinion. And if I feel any sense of bleeding, like if I feel any judgment or anger or something inside myself, then I know I don't speak. Like I got to like check in and say, what am I now? What am I not in touch with? But that doesn't usually happen. Normally, I'm pretty like when I'm with somebody even. And it's funny because there's a lot of people, especially as we mentioned earlier, if you're in a country that takes hierarchy seriously, then you have a hard time speaking to someone in a leadership position that um, because you feel like, wow, they're important or special or whatever. And then you don't say the things that are kind of obvious, right? Mm. And, uh, yeah. and I mean, I'm dealing with people that are really, I mean, a lot of these people, they're, you know, there'd be people on the top 100 fortune list. So these are really prominent people in, in the world, you know, they're not, so they're also not used to people being that frank with them because mostly, most time people want something from them. So they'll tend to, try to accommodate whatever it is that they think the other that they want so that they won't lose favor with them you know right so i mean how do you deal with uh, you must run into skepticism about the way you work uh the people were saying like what qualifies you for this job why should i listen to you and yeah i don't know if you ever get that from clients because they would obviously be the ones who hired you but like yeah were there any kind of situations where I, I don't know? Um, let's say you you mentioned about uh, selling up all all your possessions, leaving your job to move in with your with your mentor. And yeah. look, you said that you came across a lot of resistance from your friends who are very skeptical, and I think some of them thought you might have been you might have joined a cult of some sort. Yes. So was there any kind of situation where you found yourself on that other side of the fence and you run into people who were maybe who were skeptical and maybe a little bit hostile and saying, what are you, like, are you a fraud or are you, like, how do you deal with that? And, well, I mean, if you, if you, like, anyone that goes to fundamental change, then the people around them always get scared. Because hmm. it's like, that's not the person I know. Mm. So even when I'm working with people today and we do more fundamental stuff, I'll even say to them, you can't meet those people now. Like, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to compete with other people trying to get you to be the person that they need you to be. So you either choose to be with them, which is cool with me, or you go on a journey where you really don't fall into old patterns. It's like a drug addict. You can't say I'm going to get off the drug, but I'm going to go out with the friends that are drinking and smoking and so on. So so basically in the change process and, and it was true for me as well right i i 
I really didn't like the person I had become. And basically I started to, uh, to like behave differently. And of course, when you behave differently, people think, Oh my God, what's going on? You're different. And, you know, and like anything in life, I mean, you, you, you flip, right. You, you suppress an emotion and then all of a sudden you start to express it. It goes way far the other direction because you're just learning how to, to, you know, to get angry Uh, and skepticism. Now, you know, the funny thing is, I want them to be skeptical. Like I will look at their face and say, you be skeptical. And I say, the one thing you will do is this. If you doubt whatever I say, then you check in with me. Otherwise we're not in relationship. Mm. So, so that's all I ask. I say, do what you, and don't do anything I say, unless it's an experiment, trust your gut until the, until the point that you see whatever I say doesn't work. Mm. Right. But I'm pulling from such simple principles of life. Like, if, 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 like, you just strip it all down, life can be kind of obvious, except the beliefs, the self-identity, everything we want to be stops us from just saying to the person next to us, dude, I really appreciate you for what you've done for me, you know? Mm-hmm. So instead of saying that, because we don't want to be vulnerable, we just, like, we pretend like, like, we ourselves maybe are better than we are, and then that person never feels connected, and then you lose the relationship and you have no idea why you're no longer friends or they didn't want to work with you. And then yeah. you blame them. And that it just there's so many obvious things that we just jump over. And uh, it's sad for me. That's where I feel very helpless often because it's like... Yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, I find that um, by not taking responsibility for any of my actions and blaming everyone else for things around me, that, that it seems to be working great for me now. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's... I just had a question about possessions and so on. So how do you view possessions now? I mean, we, we take different views, I guess, of our own things and possessions. And I know certainly as you watch loved ones pass away, when you find it's afterwards, all this left them in the things, you just have a different view of it. Has that yeah. evolved over the past 10 years? Yeah. So in, in Amsterdam, I, as I mentioned, I manage a landmark. It's the first kindergarten in the country. It's quite a miraculous building. And, 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 in that house, it's like my playground. So I've collected 5,000 pieces of, of porcelain that's Dutch porcelain, the blue, white porcelain. And there's this huge chest of, it's like a, it's a wardrobe that goes to the bottom of the floor. It's just, if you look up, you're looking at just porcelain from this, you know, this old porcelain, the, 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 the Dutch. God, thank um, glad you don't live in an area with seismic activity. Yeah. Exactly. It would not work. <laughs> and, um, and, and yet... I see that as just belonging to that house. Mm. And when that house goes away, actually, whatever happens with that porcelain, I'm happy with. So in a weird way, the purchase now is more functional because it belongs in that. Mm. So I don't shun it and I don't identify with the purchase. I just think, wow, what a beautiful expression. And I love house museums. I travel the world and go to these house museums. And I've often found that wonderful house museums have these collections and you know, if you go to like the Sone House in the middle of London or, or you know, some of these others, the Strawberry Hill House is also, they're just, they're wonderful collections. So all I've done, I've got one room with 40 paintings, floor to ceiling of ships because the theme of the house is ships. Uh, and, and I look at those ships every day. I enjoy the fact that I created a piece of what feels like an artwork. And I love that like a Buddhist, I've drawn my sand and I can blow it away. And that feels just as gratifying. Good way to put it. All right. Yeah. So the, so the possessions, I would say they don't possess me anymore. That would be the, that would be, if the house burned down, 
it wouldn't be like, oh my God, I've lost whatever I thought I had. I just, there, apparently yeah. we need to rebuild the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to give a, do you want to talk about your book briefly or when it's going to be coming out and yeah. where it will be available? Yeah, well, it's coming out. Kohler Books will be the publisher. Mm-hmm. Kohler Books is a, a hybrid publisher and they, uh, I, I went around and had a lot of talks and they really, they, they just felt really good. So I was happy to work with them. And basically it's going to be out in September. Um, the, uh, the, the copy that will be basically being sent out for people to, to the early draft to be coming out in uh, just over a month. Mm-hmm. I've gone through the six cover designs and uh, it was really quite a funny experience because each design appeals to a different person in the world. So I got to look, <laughs> got to look at my book from the perspective of why who grabs this book and is this actually meeting what's in the book right which is the another experience you know you want to you want to be consistent with how you represent it and what's in it and yeah. uh, and as the book is really it's kind of an interesting hybrid in the sense that it it's taking my real life story in a very intimate way i mean you, if you read it you see I'm sharing the deep, dark secrets in a way that probably mm. most people wouldn't feel comfortable mm. letting themselves be seen. And at the same time, I'm showing how each uh, of these human experiences through the six or seven, now seven countries I've lived in sort of formed another understanding of the world. So it's, uh, it's it kind of, it takes really, it certainly follows this hero's journey um, that you, that, that that's prevalent, obviously, in, in a lot of writing and, and film, but it, what I liked and what was important for me was to express not only the experience of it, which would be a more of a memoir-like experience, but actually what are the kind of awarenesses that one uh, develops through a kind of a more spiritual journey. And, and, and I like that because I got to tell you, when people present themselves, they often want to present themselves in the best light. And what I was really looking forward to doing is just saying, If you're in, we all are on some spiritual journey, whether we actually want to acknowledge it as spiritual, whatever, however we define that, but it's, it's messy and you do stupid things along the way and you make kind of big errors or you take big risks that you didn't even know were, were things you'd reflect back on and say, wow, I'm so proud that I did that. Right. Mm. The the time, it always feels a lot more um, difficult. So for me, um, the book really was just an incredible opportunity to sort of take the life experience through the seven countries and then add in and layer in all of the awarenesses that we're developing alongside. So the feedback I've gotten from the readers is that basically they see themselves in that development very clearly and that they see, oh, I can understand how it would evolve from here. So mm. it's, it's instead of it being like, this is, you know, let me preach to you around the future of your spiritual development. It's more like, oh yeah, I can see where I'm possibly in this area at the moment. And I can understand what a journey might look like. Mm. That's that's been really, uh, yeah, I've really been excited to hear that people have been um, identifying themselves and feeling like they're learning a lot, although the book isn't isn't there to teach, which I love, you know. Okay. I would never tell anyone what to do, but I know you could ask a lot of questions that would help them figure it out easier on their own. I, I, I approach life in that state like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like even if someone looked at my life, they think, oh my God, he's got to figure it out. But actually day to day, I just wrote a book a year ago without any clear idea of why I was writing it. And then it got written. And then because it was received well and people were forwarding it to friends, I thought, wow, I got to do something about this. Now I'm doing a three month tour. So, I mean, in a a weird way, 
the whole journey is sort of like trust every step will lead you closer to the next step and then you'll find in the end you got somewhere you had no idea how you got there but taking that step is often the hardest thing because people want to have a solution before they've actually taken the step and you never you never exactly. get the solution you just take the step and then you see what's what the next possible step is yeah, I think that's exactly. a real I think that's kind of the dilemma with a lot of uh, a lot of the the people graduating from college today is that I often hear them talking about meaningful things they want to do something that's uh, special or important and then they're unemployed for like 10 years because they haven't found the thing and I'm always thinking just find a thing and guarantee you that thing will allow you to do the next thing but if you don't exactly. do the thing you'll spend 2 years wondering what you should be doing and you'll never have gotten anywhere so yeah, life is a series of steps and discoveries. Yeah. As you said in your book, life is a journey in itself. Yeah. The meaning. Enjoy that. And I hope you enjoyed that. Lots of gratitude and thanks to Andy for sharing some time out of his busy schedule on the road for chatting with us. You can see why I said earlier that it's difficult to describe exactly what he does. Perhaps a professional friend, or friend for hire as he calls it, is an apt description for what he does. Information on Andy's tour dates can be found on his website, which we'll have a link to in the footnotes, and which will also contain information on his book. That's it for this episode. Catch you next time. Bye-bye! The f chat podcast is supported by Claire, the Council of Local Authorities for International Relations, that is otherwise an independent project by me, Aiden Law. All opinions and ideas discussed on the Optijab podcast do not necessarily represent the views or position of Claire or any organization associated with Claire. Thank you as always to everyone who has supported and made this project of mine possible.